Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt Eye Connections in New York taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about Eye Connections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. In 1926, Dan, Ernest Hemingway released his first novel, The Sun Also Rises. 1926. I mentioned that, Dan, because as it turns out, the sun also sets. And as we're doing this podcast here on Thursday, which drops on Friday, a lot of sunsets in the market. Now, we are not one to do the I told you so stuff, but what I will say, and I think you would echo, a lot of the things that you've seen over the last week, week and a half, we've talked about at great length here at On The Tape. By the way, Dan, how are you? I'm doing well, Guy Dami. Thank you for that kind introduction there. I don't know if it's a kind introduction. You like to put the little literary references in this little podcast that we do here. You've done a string of them over the year and a half that we've been doing this, haven't you? I have, and I enjoy literary references. You know, I went, as you know, I attended and graduated from a fine Jesuit institution, Georgetown University, and we needed to read books at that school. So that's what I did. All right, let's talk about it. When you talk about the sun also setting, it's pretty remarkable. When we were headed into April, Guy, we had this stat that 15 of the last 16 Aprils have been higher for the S&P 500. And whatever that average return was, it wasn't small. It was by, I think, at least 1% or 2% or so. And I remember we spent some time talking about what those sort of statistics mean. But listen, man, since last Wednesday, the Fed had that presser. It was the first half-point Fed funds rate hike that they have done since May of 2000. The S&P at its lows this morning from last Wednesday's close was down 10%, and the NASDAQ was down nearly 13%. And what's interesting, and you and I have talked about this a lot, we've talked about it with Danny, is that when the Fed was raising in May of 2000, they were really focused on an asset bubble, and they thought the economy was rip-roaring. And right now, I think they think the economy is also very strong, but they're really worried about what runaway inflation might do to said strength here. And I got to tell you, this week, though, Guy, there seemed to be a slight shift in just the attitude that I could see. So we saw this reversal in bond yields. I think that's pretty interesting. We've seen a lot of cyclical commodities get hit pretty hard. Some of your material names have been hit really hard. We also have seen the inflation break-evens. We've seen that come 
come in and stocks can't find a bid. They're trying to find a bid here today, but not the ones that matter. The ones that matter are acting very poorly. You put all of that together with a surging dollar. It just seems like, what would you call that guy? I would call that a witch's brew. And I'm sure a lot of you are listening and wondering, where's Danny Moses? What's fascinating about that, the Cars, their fourth album, I believe, released in 1982, Shake It Up. One of the songs on that album was Since You're Gone. And Danny, since you're gone, some really weird things have been happening. Many of the things that obviously Danny Moses has been talking about as well. And that stagflation chorus that he began last summer when nobody even knew what the word meant, Now there seems to be echoes of it everywhere. And quite frankly, it makes a lot of sense. But to your point about things feeling different, I actually think this type of price action, now this type of angst that people seem to be feeling, and when I say angst, I'm getting calls from people I haven't spoken to in years. That to me makes it a lot closer to the end than the beginning, Dan. I agree with that. I'm incrementally less bearish right now. You and I are in the same camp. We've been pundits together. I've been on the Fast Money Desk with you since 2011. You've been doing it, I think, for a little more than 15 years. And listen, I don't like to press markets like this. I don't like to get really the height of my bearishness when we've had the actual move that you expected for the reasons that you have. And so to me, I've been preaching Qs and Twos. I've been saying that I think you do the QQQ, the NASDAQ 100, because we know that the top six names make up 45% of the weight. And then you have dozens of stocks that are down 50, 60, 70, 80% or so, all the art crap. What the price action today tells you is that you can get massive rips in some of those names that are down that much. But when things settle out, when the bottom is in and no one's going to ring the bell at the bottom, you're going to have the same leadership from 2020 and 2021. The big names, the Microsoft, the Apple, the Google, the Amazon lead to the upside. That's what you get in the queue. And then you get all the arc shit. And I like that. So I bought a little QQQ today, guy, and I bought something called the GOVT. That is the iShares U.S. Treasury Bond ETF. That's my twos. So I got Qs and twos. I'm going to start legging in that. I started small, but I just think that that's how you're going to play the next leg of the bull rally. I still think we go lower. So I'm not calling a bottom anything. And you and I have been talking about some math here, guy. The last shoe to drop, forget the stock market, will be analysts and strategists who have not lowered their 2022 S&P earnings estimates. It's still sitting above $220, which is basically a 10% year-over-year increase. And you tell me, guy, we just had peak margins, the dollar where it is, and considering how much of that earnings is predicated on U.S. multinationals, right? We have the cost of capital much higher, rates higher, and we have what's potentially a slowing economy with all those inflationary pressures. I just don't see how we get anywhere near there. Maybe it's low single digits. And if you get to $205 and you slap the 10-year average of the S&P PE at about 17 on that, you get 3500 buddy. And that's very near the February 2020 high where the market collapsed from during the pandemic. Well, that's exactly right, actually, if you want to go back that far. And listen, your math is spot on. I'll mention this, that the S&P 500, which we often speak about, Dan, made an all-time high of 48.1862 to the penny, as they say. That was in early January, I believe. The move we saw today, today being Thursday, the low of the day, that was a 20% to the penny, as they say, almost peak to trough decline, which is interesting because 20% is seemingly that magic number. Now, again, I'm not quick to call bottom. I don't want to do that. I think a lot of people 
since the passing of Mark Haynes have tried to do that unsuccessfully because they want to be the next person that does it. That won't be me, and I don't think that will be you. With that said, 3750 has been my number in the S&P 500. The overshoot is your level 3,500. I think 3,750 is where you take a snapshot and say, okay, where are these individual stocks trading at the time? For longest time, I thought Apple would trade down to 138. That would be your capitulatory moment. Actually got down to 139 and changed today. Again, today being Thursday. So a lot of things are starting to line up here. We'll see how it shakes out. But now the overarching emphasis has been on all the negativity, which now people are starting to come around to. And that typically happens when you're getting ready for a pretty significant bounce. You and I have talked about this and Danny has talked about this. I mean, listen, there is no V bottom this time around. So in 2018, we V bottom because the Fed pivoted. They got increasingly dovish right after this multi-year hawkish stance. They weren't really even aggressively raising rates, but the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield got above 3% and the stock market went down. How much, Guy Dummy? Dan, it went down 19.9% from approximately Halloween of 2018 until Christmas Eve, literally Christmas Eve of that same year, Dan Nathan. It did do that. And then we had a V bottom in March, April of 2020. And at the time, no one knew that that was the bottom. But when you consider the fiscal and the monetary stimulus that was being thrown at the economy, there you had a V bottom. We're just not going to have that right now and not any time over the next few months here. Fed Fund Futures is pricing, what, an 80% chance of a 50 basis point rise in June, about the same for that increase in July. Listen, that might be it. If they start talking down their hawkishness, it just depends how it gets there. If they get there because the global economy is weakening or the U.S. economy is weakening, that might not be a great thing for risk assets either. I just don't think in this sort of environment where inflation and their credibility on the matter is so important that they're going to be able to jawbone the stock market higher anytime soon. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think there are also a lot of people that believe I'm not one of these people. There are a lot of people that think there is a level in the stock market, the S&P 500 again, that if it were to reach, this Fed would pivot based on the move in the broader market. I don't think we're at that point now. I think this is seems to be a Federal Reserve that is not nearly as focused on the market that the prior administration was, and to that end, that those group of Fed governors were because they basically were getting browbeat by an administration that was talking about the stock market being a report card for the success or failure of the administration. It's neither here nor there now. Back then, inflation was a concern. Obviously, it's a huge concern now. The thing that I've been exorcised about for quite some time is this belief that they seemingly had, they being Fed officials, that they could get the inflation that they wanted to get and somehow be able to control it. I never in my wildest dreams thought they could do it. And now we're finding out full bore that they can't. And quite frankly, the thing that pisses me off is, and I've said it for a while, be careful what you wish for because you might get it. So these same people that were begging for it two years ago are now trying to squash it or quell it or whatever word you want to use now. Tamp it down, Guy Dami. Tamp it down. Tamp it down. You know what else has been tamped down, by the way? We have to talk about it, and I knew it was going to come up anyway, but the move in crypto to me is fascinating. Why is it fascinating? Because we've talked about this as well. I think, again, just my opinion, crypto to me was born from this fear of central banks basically run amok. And if you sort of line it up, the birth of crypto took place when every central bank on the planet was adding liquidity to the system. So the crypto ballers and all the crypto mavens out there had never seen 
central banks trying to be at least somewhat responsible, and I'm choosing to use that word. It's not coincidental that Bitcoin specifically topped out around the same time that this Fed pivoted in late November of last year. So what does that mean? Well, it makes sense to me that crypto is now, Bitcoin specifically, has been more than cut in half. We actually traded down to Carter's $25,500, $26,000 level, today being Thursday, and we'll see what happens. What I've also said, and I tweeted, I think the bull case for crypto, and I'm curious as to your thoughts, if this Fed were to pivot again, for whatever reason, if they were to blink, Bitcoin doesn't go to 68,000 under those scenarios. I think it goes literally to six digits, meaning 100,000. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I don't mean to sound so dismissive. I just find the Bitcoin story as it relates to the entire crypto ecosystem pretty uninteresting. And I know that sounds weird because it's kind of the OG crypto, if you will. I've been a lot more interested in the other layer one protocols of smart contracts like Ethereum and Solana. And I actually bought a little of both of those today. First time I bought either in a very long time here. And I think, could they go down much lower? Of course, this is not investment advice. I'm just kind of picking at some stuff here. And I think just to put a button on the stock bear market, the equity bear market, time is going to be the thing that gets us out of it. We've already seen a correction on price, seen a correction on a re-rating on valuations. Now we just need to see the estimates catch up to it. On the crypto thing, let's just think about this. We had Melton Demers, friend of the pod. She's also one of my co-hosts on OK Computer, another podcast from Risk Personal Media. That dropped yesterday. She and I and Packy McCormick were talking about this. Listen, she's really into Bitcoin. Packy's really into the smart contract layer ones. She said that the average peak to drop drawdown has been 80% over the life of Bitcoin. You get 80% from last year's high as a 69,000 guy, you get 14,000 here. And so I guess my question is, if the whole ecosystem, forget all the VC investment, all that sort of stuff, but if the coin ecosystem gets below, let's say a half a trillion, well, what is it then? I just don't know because what are the use cases? 40 year high inflation expectations It was originally thought to be a good inflation hedge. It's not, if you think about it, that store of value. Well, it's been a volatile one. So that hasn't really held up a payment layer and this and that, whatever. It's really slow and expensive. and this and So that hasn't held up. The other thing that makes me really nervous about Bitcoin are people like Jack Dorsey who want to tear it all down and just rebuild it with Bitcoin. And that's the only coin that they see. That's the only crypto world that they see. It's like they're in some bizarro matrix or something. And those people make me nervous. So I'm not interested in Bitcoin. I'm interested in the other stuff. The way I'm thinking about ETH and the way I'm thinking about Solana is the way I'd allocate capital towards, let's say, a high growth tech stock that I think is in a really strong secular sort of shift. So to me, all that's interesting. A lot of bloodletting to come. We've been talking about it on the tape for months and months that there are pockets of risk in the crypto world that people have not been looking at or thinking about things like NFTs as financial instruments, which they are because they've lost a lot of value here. And that might be some of this bloodletting guy where people are selling the liquid stuff that they have, the Bitcoin, the ETH. So to me, the jury's still out on it. People used to say, well, if it could stay above a trillion, the longer it's here, I'm just not so sure. And then the other point, I wish Danny was here because the funny business going on with stable coins, and he's been talking about Tether for a very long time. It almost feels like a year now. That seems like it's coming home to roost with this whole Luna and the Terra thing. So a couple of things. I think actually Danny is in Scotland playing golf. I've never been to Scotland. I'm sure it's lovely. No doubt he looks great in that garb that they wear there to golf. I think they call their golf courses links, not to be confused with the wildcat links, which is an Y, not an I. Number two, you mentioned Matrix, and I'm actually asking this as a serious question. Was that Joaquin Phoenix or Keanu Reeves 
in the Matrix. That was Keanu. You know that. Was Keanu? No, I don't know. Those guys, they're very similar if you think about it. I like their movies. I'm just, I've never seen The Matrix either, which should come as no surprise. Joaquin Phoenix would take huge issue with that. He seems to be an intelligent sort of actor, and Keanu is basically meant to be like the bimbo sort of guy or whatever. Let's hit some single stocks here. Well, that's what I was going to say next. Believe it or not, you actually read my mind. I don't know how you did that. Maybe you played Joaquin Phoenix when he was Johnny Cash. They called him John in the movie, which I think is great. I actually went to the Johnny Cash Museum recently, but that's exactly right. Individual stocks. We do this from time to time, but this is something that I've said on the show for years. I've written about, we've talked about. You have to have a game plan in place, people. What does that mean? You have to have price points in place that if certain stocks were to get there, you're going to buy them regardless of what's going on, regardless of the noise. Because what winds up happening is if you don't have that, playbook in place, you're going to get spooked out. You're going to be like, oh my God, I can't believe it's here, but it's too scary. So you have to try to take the emotion out of the equation. If Apple gets to 138, I don't give a shit what's going on. I am buying a quarter position, a half position, whatever it is. If Microsoft gets to 245, by the way, a level that you've talked about, I'm buying a half, quarter, third position, and so on and so on. The same holds true for Amazon And there are a number of different stocks out there. The mistake people make is they have these ideas in their mind, but then these stocks get to those levels, but it's not for the reasons that they ever envisioned. It's always scarier when they get there than you anticipated it to be, Dan Nathan. I think your point is a good one. You're not going in on a full position. I say this to people all the time with winners, losers, or when they're looking to initiate a position in difficult times, sometimes just doing the smallest thing, just moving your feet a little bit, getting in motion is actually really the smart thing. So I think that makes a lot of sense. And I just think with the S&P down nearly 20%, it's down 18, it just bounced a little bit off the lows and the NASDAQ was down nearly 30. This is the time if you want to deploy some capital and you have more than like a two-week time horizon to start thinking about starting small, nibbling at some things. And that's kind of the mode that I'm in. There will be another leg of the bull. I guess the real question is, how long is this bear going to last? And we mentioned this on numerous occasions. In 2000, the stock market topped out in March. It bottomed in October of 2002. And then in 2007, it topped out in November and it bottomed in March of 2009. And that felt like an excruciatingly long period in both. I just don't think the bear market in the major indices, and that's the key point, because the NASDAQ topped out in late November, and who knows where it's going to bottom, and the S&P topped out in the first week of January. Again, who knows where it's going to bottom. I just think if you're trying to put your finger on a point right now, here in May, it's probably too soon, guy. You played that sport with sticks in college, right? Lacrosse? Yeah. You started at the Q's and then you went on to the University of Pennsylvania. I mentioned that because some of the best players, I think you were a defenseman. No, I was an attackman. You were an attackman. Well, the best defenders you played against is my sense, the guys who were able to move their feet the quickest. My point is, Dan, you don't ever want to find yourself standing in place because what happens then? Well, the attackmen pass you by and subsequently... The world passes you by. And this is a good point when you said about buy points. And I think it's also important that you don't be too rigid either. Think about it. Like sometimes the ground is moving below your feet to keep this reference going here. And when the situation changes, you change your mind. 
Here's an interesting thing from early in the week. We were on Fast Money, I think it was Tuesday night, and our friend Rick Heitzman, who's also my co-host on OK Computer, he was on the show. He's a VC at First Mark Capital. He also has tremendous experience in the public markets. They invested very early, he and his partner, Amish Johnny, who's a great dude, in Shopify. And so they've known this story, guy, for 10 years. This stock has gone from $1,700 and it made a low of 308 I think, today. So yesterday, Amish tweets this out, and I thought this was really interesting. Great companies are built by great leaders. Having known Toby and Harley F. from the earliest days and knowing the incredibly strategic assets shop has, it feels like the market has over-rotated and is missing a great opportunity to buy. Rick said the same thing on our show. Toby, who's the CEO, one of the co-founders, said, thank you, Amish. Totally agreed on this being the market over rotation. I just placed a 10 million order for Shopify stock myself. It's time to build rocket ship emoji. So that sort of action was pretty interesting. At one point today, guy, this stock had a delayed reaction to that tweet yesterday was up nearly 20%. Granted, it was down 83% at its lows from those highs in November. It's up about 11%. This is a company that has a great balance sheet. They have a $44 billion market cap. They have close to $8 billion in cash and a little more than a billion dollars in debt. The revenues have tripled since their pandemic year, I guess, early 2020. And the stock has retraced that entire move. So looking for situations like that, where the CEOs, co-founders are in there buying and some of the earliest investors are getting behind it, I think that makes a lot of sense. Let me say this, Dan, since you walking down this memory lane, you go back and look the low in March of 2020, which as everybody knows, was a pretty dramatic time in the stock market. Look at what the low was in Shopify in early March. And now look at the low to your point, Today, today being Thursday, folks, 308. So that is in our world what we call a round trip. And I got to tell you something. In terms of Shopify now, this is a company that's probably going to do $8 billion in revenue or so next year. I think the next time we report is midsummer in August. So you don't have earnings release coming. But you can be talking about a company that's going to start to do this slow grind higher into earnings later this summer. So to your point, is that capitulation? Well, it's a stock that's probably going to trade north of 10 million shares today, typically trades three. I would say that exactly what capitulation looks like. Let's talk about some of these bigger names. Let's talk about the Apple really quickly, Guy, because you had said 138. You said that when the stock was, I think, 175. In that March rip that we had from mid-March to early April, the stock had gotten as low as 150 and as high as 180, and then it retraced the whole move. Yesterday, when the stock went through 150, it went straight to 140. So it almost got to your level today. And this is one that you and I have been talking about for a long time, and I think you said it fairly eloquently earlier. This thing doesn't need to trade in the market multiple. For years, it traded below a market multiple when you said it was a growth stock and it was trading in a value stock. So here's the deal. Estimates are still pretty high for this thing, given what we know about supply chains and potential demand destruction for high-end consumer discretionary stuff. Maybe this is not discretionary. Maybe it's more of a staple. But this stock could have another 10% downside. But at that point, guy, I got to think this is probably a really good level to start layering into a story like Apple. From its all-time high, 182, 84 or something, the low we made today, again, I say it for the fifth time, today being Thursday, 138.80, that's a 24% peak to trough decline, which is a typical Apple peak to trough decline that we have seen a number of times over the last five or six years. So believe it or not, folks, I know you've been sort of browbeat into believing Apple never goes lower. It turns out it actually does, and it does it with a pretty 
regular amount of times. And here we are with a, again, 24% peak to trough decline. I said it a number of times. I'm not suggesting Apple should trade at a market multiple. It definitely deserves a premium multiple, but at 27 times next year's numbers, which it was trading at at its zenith, didn't make any sense to me, especially in an environment where everybody was starting to get concerned about valuations. And oh, by the way, if it wasn't Apple, Dan, and you just saw a stock, you didn't know the name of it, and it's like, wait a second, 6% EPS growth, maybe 8% revenue growth, something along those lines, trading at 27 times next year's numbers, you'd say to yourself, gee, that doesn't make a lot of sense in this environment. You'd be right. So there you are. Now, I know people would say, well, you got to add the cash back. I totally get it. By the way, I'll say this. I think a lot of times Apple is penalized by the amount of cash they have on their balance sheet, not rewarded for it. All right, let's do a speed round here. I'm going to hit you on some stuff. Oh, I like this. Speed round. Let's do bank stocks. JP Morgan is down 25% on the year. Bank of America is down 22%. Citigroup's down 23%. They just don't act particularly well here. And listen, JP Morgan, there's one unfilled gap, as our main man Carter Braxtonworth likes to say. It's down there between 105 and 110 or so. Assuming that there is not some disaster, Danny's made the point on many occasions that some of these that don't have exposure to Russia and sanctions and maybe some of these other areas where we might see some palpitations in the global economy. They're well capitalized. Is this a group that you want to start picking at? I think so. And I've pointed out, and it was a little early as it turns out, and our business, Dan, early is akin to being wrong most of the time. But I actually made a point months ago that JP Morgan, there's nothing wrong with it. Just again, valuations didn't make sense. At its peak, it was trading close to 2.6 times tangible book, which doesn't make any sense in this environment. You're talking about numbers that we saw pre-financial crisis. So now, at least at 1.7 times tangible book, at least you can wrap your head around that a little bit in terms of valuation. And I do think JP Morgan is still best in breed. What I said on Fast Money the other night, and I'll say here, I don't think JP Morgan should be trading at that same tangible book valuation as Bank of America. Now, maybe that means bank has to trade lower or maybe that means bank trades lower, JP Morgan trades higher. I don't know. All I'm saying is something is amiss. So again, markets overshoot to the upside. That clearly happened with JPM. Now it's happening on the downside. So if you have not been in these bank names, or even if you've been in them and looking for an entry point, what I'll tell you is, and you said it earlier, we're not saying this is the bottom, but this is levels where it starts to make sense to build a position without question. Here's one that this chart's going to melt your brain a little bit. Right before the pandemic, Boeing was trading 350 guy in February of 2020. And it was down from nearly 450 the prior year in 2019. Now, we know they had a couple of those crashes, the 737 maxes, nearly 350 people died on those. And the stock went straight from 350, though, this is during the pandemic, to below 100, briefly, 89. Here the stock is, guy. It's at 122. It literally looks like it's going back to the pandemic lows. They just can't catch a bid. And I think it's interesting. I'd also say transports act really poorly here. Some of this stuff really speaks to the potential for growth scares. That's why we're trying to tease some of this stuff out. And I will tell you, it's also one of the reasons why, Guy, I really like the QQQ on a relative basis to all this because of the moats, because of the monopolies, because of the balance sheets, all that sort of stuff. I don't think you could say with some of these very cyclical areas that are still impacted by rolling COVID, war in Europe, potential for recession in Europe, and obviously here too, and then pesky and persistent inflation. Is that what you call it? Mm -hmm. You like that, right? As you mentioned, pre-COVID, Boeing was trading, I think to your point, 350. When it traded at its trough level, it was double digits. 
It never got back anywhere close to 350. I think it topped that around 245, 250-ish. And now here we are, cut in half from those levels. I think the all-time high in Boeing, again, not that it matters, was north of 400, sometimes in 2019. But I think you're right to point out that if growth scares your concern, and I think it's a concern for a lot of people, Boeing stands at sort of the threshold of all of that if you think about the businesses they're in. Listen, a lot of the problems with Boeing are without question self-inflicted. I get it. But there are a lot of problems that are not self-inflicted that are economically based. And you have to have Boeing on your radar screen just in terms of you can tell if the worm has turned or if that switch has been flipped. Yeah, well, flip it, baby. All right, to put a little bow on this, you and I are both incrementally less bearish. A lot of it has to do with just the devastation we've just seen in the last week. Look at the reversal in yields. That could be a good thing. If we saw some industrial commodities come in, maybe for the right reasons, maybe inflation's peaking, maybe the fact that the Fed won't have to hike as aggressively and they can pull off some sort of soft landing, maybe, who knows? My point is, it doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense where sentiment readings are right now, where the price action is right now to get overly bearish. But I am definitely in the camp that we go lower before we get higher. But I just don't think it makes a lot of sense to kind of lean into the short trade right here, guy. I agree. Leaning into the short trades, you're trading wrong if you're doing that. I agree. I think if, in fact, you're playing the market that way, you're looking for a new entry point, which I don't think we're at right now in terms of initiating shorts. We'll see. Thursday now is over, and you had this S&P 500, which rallied almost to unchanged to close the day. So again, a lot of things shaking out the way we thought they'd shake out. Obviously, tomorrow, Friday the 13th, today as this is dropping, is going to be a fascinating day. But day where the VIX didn't explode to the upside, had every opportunity to. The HYG didn't collapse, had every opportunity to. At least it's showing signs that maybe, again, we're in the later innings of this. So we'll see what happens, Dan, Nathan. All right. Nostradami, why don't you come to your senses? You got time for the Eagles, don't you? You know, it's funny you say that. The short answer is yes, I have time. But everybody makes the same mistake that you made. And I'm not trying to correct you here on the podcast. The Eagles. I know. The name of the group is Eagles. And they'll be the first to point out. Take the the away. For example, it's the cars. I mentioned the cars earlier in our podcast. But it's not, for example, the Boston or the Kansas. It is, in fact, the Rolling Stones. I can go on and on. Boston, Kansas, and the Eagles, to me, are three of the worst bands in the last 50 years. I have zero time. And throw Fleetwood Mac in there, too. Steely Dan, no time. So you know where I live, and it's just nowhere near those guys. No, I know. And your podcast, which I listen to religiously, OK Computer, that great song by Nirvana, which I totally dig Dave Grohl and Nirvana. That's just one of my favorite albums of all time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get the joke. All right, man. Well, listen, I'm really excited. The conversation that you and I had with, what do you call him? A-R-S? What's his name? That would be Andrew Ross Sorkin. And when we come back, folks, the one and only Andrew Ross Sorkin, you know him from Squawk Box, but he's done so many other things. And we're going to talk about it after the break. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. 
iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, Visit iConnections.io. Andrew Ross Sorkin is co-anchor of CNBC's Squawk Box. Andrew is also a columnist for the New York Times and the founder and editor-at-large of DealBook, an online daily financial report published by the Times that he started in 2001. Andrew is the author of Too Big to Fail, How Wall Street and Washington Fought to Save the Financial System and Themselves which chronicled the events of the 2008 financial crisis. The New York Times bestseller was adapted on an HBO movie in 2011. He's also co-creator of the Showtime drama series Billions, and I would submit he is a badass. All right, people, I'm going to rattle off some names. John Cougar Mellencamp, Sandra Day O'Connor, Edgar Allan Poe, Frank Lloyd Wright, What do they all have in common? They're these cats with three names that are famous, but the most famous dude with three names is joining us now, and that would be one, Andrew Rorse Sorkin. How are you, my man? I mean, I'm good, but now I'm better because I'm in company like that. I don't believe that, really. I wasn't going to put John. I wasn't going to put John Wilkes Booth in that group, by the way. Well, that would ruin it. But let me just say that Three names I always felt was quite pretentious. But yet you go by them. You are Andrew Ross Sorkin. You're not Andrew Sorkin. You're not Ross. You're not ARS. You are Andrew Ross Sorkin. So the truth is it was a complete accident, though. So when I was 18 years old, I was an intern at the New York Times. And my mother's maiden name, so you can now steal my credit card, is Ross. And so my grandfather, I was getting my first article in the paper at 18 years old. And my grandfather, we went out to lunch before the article came out. And he said, you got to use your middle name. I never used my middle name. I was Andrew Sorkin the whole time. And then he said, you got to put Ross in there for the family. Because we thought this would be the first and last time my name would ever appear in the New York Times. And that's how it happened. That is amazing. And you know what? Good for your grandfather. But I'll say this. In 1995, you're an 18-year-old senior in high school writing for the New York Times. You're on your way to Cornell, to Scarsdale High School. I mean, you're kicking ass. When I was 18, I was lifeguarding. I didn't know what that, how does that happen? How do you write for the New York Times as a senior in high school? Doesn't make any sense to somebody like me. I'm a hack, I get it. But talk to me about that. Honestly, and this is not like some false modesty thing or some weird thing. A lot of things broke the right way for me. No joke. I was always interested in media, even as a kid. The truth is that when I was 15 years old, I started a local sports magazine that we tried to make a national magazine great learning lesson for me. But I basically used to call literally from home. I'd go home at lunchtime during high school to try to call the advertising columnist at the New York Times to try to get a meeting with this guy. Literally, that's what was happening. 
By the way, I too, I was going to be a camp counselor. I wasn't going to work at the pool, but I was going to be a camp counselor that summer. And I went to work for Stuart Elliott for five weeks for free with no intention of putting two words together, let alone a sentence. And I got totally lucky. There was an editor there who had no idea how old I was. I had a suit on. I think she thought I was like a real person in the building and she assigned me a story to write. And that's how it happened. Wow. All right. So dress like the guy or gal that you want to, yes. to do the job. That That's the story here. Yes, except that everybody now dresses down. So I don't know what you're supposed to do. Well, Andrew, we found that story and it's really interesting. So think back to May of 1995. I was graduating college. I was at the University of Pennsylvania and I was actually only had a couple credits left. And I took what I thought was a really easy course. It was literally on web pages, on building web pages. Okay. And I kind of dialed it in. Think about it. Spring, senior year, that sort of thing. This article guy was named What Goes On, Call of the Modem to Some is a Sweet Nothing. This was about internet modems in 1995. That crazy noise that modems make. Nobody even knows what a modem is anymore. You talk to a kid, they look at you like you've got 12 heads. But ironically, nobody knew what they were in 1995 yet either. There weren't any real applications for most people just didn't have AOL yet in 1995. What I'm saying is they were like, you look young, you can probably figure this out, right? Yeah, no, and that's why I got like, like, I was not a tech genius. I was just of the age. At that time, kids would go on to bulletin board sites. I finally got in my parents to get us a 486. I had a gateway, 2000. Of course. And they went away in the year 2000 gateway. All right, let's talk about this, though, because a lot of our listeners know you from the co-host of Squawk Box, which is 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. on CNBC. You were one of the founders of DealBook. And I will tell you this, anybody who's probably listening to this and is an active investor or interested in markets and the economy, they've been reading DealBook from the inception. It was very unique sort of approach to, I guess, a blog back then, right? Yep. It was sort of pre-blog, yeah. It was pre-blog, right on billions. You wrote the book on the financial crisis, Too Big to Fail, which is absolutely amazing. I think it was made into a movie or a show also. I haven't seen it. I did read the book, and I love the book. So talk to us, man. What is the day in the life of Andrew Ross Sorkin? I know you show up at the NASDAQ every morning at probably 5 a.m. You're talking to people all day. What's the flywheel look like? Because, I mean, it sounds exhausting. Sometimes it is exhausting, but I got to tell you, I honestly feel like I'm having fun doing it. So I can't complain for a second. So I prep for the show in the morning before the show, partially actually by oftentimes helping finish up DealBook. That's actually what's happening, sort of how the flywheel works, usually going over and reviewing some of the last minute changes and things we're going to be making for that. Head over to the NASDAQ, put the makeup on, say hi to Joe and Becky, sit down. And we do the show, by the way, mostly cold, meaning like, we haven't planned it out at all. There is no script. You guys have all been on the show. You know what the deal is. And in a way, that spontaneousness of it makes it more fun. I love that show in the morning because I feel like I get to have breakfast with the most interesting people in the world who are making news usually that morning. We've got a great producer who you know, Max Myers. By the way, Squawk has a great podcast now as well, Squawk Pod, done by Katie Kramer. Show ends at nine o'clock. We usually sort of talk a little bit about what the next day is, a little post-mortem after how great or terrible some segment was or this or that. And then throughout the day, I'm spending my time both thinking about the next day show in terms of prep, booking, things like that. But I'm also sort of off to the races back thinking again about the next day's deal book. We've got a great team at the New York Times working on the newsletter. They're prepping stuff. We're all living on Slack these days. I mean, everything's obviously become remarkably hybrid, remote, whatnot. And so I'm reporting throughout the day. Some of that ends up 
in deal books, some of it ends up in the interviews and conversations we're having on Squawk Box. I'm often hopefully running to a lunch, again, trying to just meet different sources, things like that. And then some part of the day, not every day, I'd say maybe once or twice a day, I'm spending some time on a project. I'm working on a new drama at HBO around GameStop that we're hoping to do. There's always some side hustle thing. And then got three kids and an unbelievable superwoman of a wife. And so hopefully we try to have some kind of dinner or something with each other. But then oftentimes, and I saw you, Dan, the other night, oftentimes for work or whatnot, I go out to a dinner or a fundraiser or this or that. And then I try to sneak out at a reasonable hour and get into bed by, I'd say, 9.30. 9.30 is a win. 10 is I could live. 10.30 is a major fail. So you're solving to seven hours of sleep, it sounds like. And it is a sprint and a marathon. You know, Max, I've been consoling him for a couple of years now. He's just like, listen, I've just given up on the seven hours of sleep. I just go four to five and it is what it is. But here's the other thing. My mom, who's a huge fan of yours, ARS, she also says she's really enjoying you popping on to Morning Joe. And so one of the things I think is really interesting, I've caught you on there on MSNBC. You go from being the guy asking the questions, whether it be on Dealbook or up on stage or on Squawk Box, to being the one asked the questions, right, about the markets, about the economy, that sort of thing. Talk to us about that a little bit. Yeah, that's actually started going back on the show recently because they've now added a fourth hour. So they've now added an hour between nine and 10. So I'd say three, four days a week after Squawk is over, I'm often jumping in a car, running over to 30 Rock and jumping on Morning Joe for a little bit. Last night, I jumped on from home actually onto Shep Smith's show. So I've been doing different things at different times. By the way, I wanted to get, because you asked, and I want to be specific about this, about sleep. I wear an aura ring. I got six hours and 41 minutes of sleep. Hold on a second. Slow down for the octogenarian in the group. You wear a what? Is that the thing that helps you like snore or no? No, no, no. So there's a ring that tracks your sleep, your heart rate. So I got my resting heart rate down to 52, which was not terrible for me. My body temperature was low, which was good. My heart rate variability was terrible last night. I didn't drink any alcohol, but probably function of carbs. Carbs seem to do that to me. You're unbelievable. I mean, that little ring on your index finger, that's telling you all this stuff. That's the world we live in right now. All this stuff. That's the data right here. It's all here. Our readings would be off the reservation there, guy. I dig you for a myriad of different reasons. That just adds one to the list. In a lot of ways, you're my absolute hero, not least of which for some of the people that you've been able to interview over these last many years. What one interview sort of sticks with you like, oh, my God, I didn't see it going that way or this was just so fascinating. I learned something. I know that's a hard question to answer because there's so many people. But for me, there are a few that stick out during our 15 or so years on Fast Money. I'm sure there are a few for you as well. So a couple actually pandemic interviews stick out to me. One is just going back actually to Davos, Switzerland in January 2020 and sitting with Paul Tudor Jones. Nobody was focused, as you know, on COVID or the pandemic or China. And I remember him walking in and sitting down on the show and basically saying, open your eyes, people, this is it. And even to this day, I don't think we totally appreciated what was happening in that moment. I'm not even sure, frankly, he did either, but I think he knew. He knew enough to be dangerous in that moment. Did it get your antennas up, though? Did you start asking the questions? And then we became religious about it. To the point where I think people in large part of February thought we'd lost our minds and we were a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Get people tweeting, why are you focus so much on this? 
And of course, what happened happened. Well, you know, Andrew, I mean, on our show in January in Fast Money, we were talking about it. I remember Guy and myself and some of the other panelists we were saying, listen, cities larger than any city in the U.S. that we can't pronounce and have never heard of in China are being shut down. And we're acting like this is just something that's going to go away. And we were talking about it a lot. And I'll tell you something kind of interesting. Wapner and I were in Miami. It was the week of the Super Bowl in 2020. It was the first week in February. And we saw David Tepper at a party. And David, we went up to him. We were going to chat with him about the Panthers. And he goes, no, no, no. He brings over some of his markets guys, like the guys who manage his money and stuff like that. Talk to these guys. What do you think? This was the first week of February, the last week of January, and nobody could have thought that it was going to bubble that way. I think it was Tudor Jones who also called it a black hole that we were in in late February or January, and I think that's kind of apropos. With everyone sent home in mid-March, a lot of people were obviously worried about their health, but they're also worried about their money. And every morning, you guys had to program. I'm sure the ratings were off the chart. Talk to us a little bit about that and the sort of mood that you would strike because, again, nobody knew that we were going to have two years later a million deaths in America and economic activity that was just destroyed in the year to follow. Well, look, I remember... A, being genuinely worried for people's health, I will say, even more than necessarily the market. A friend of mine named David Latt who created Above the Law and young guy, my age, and he was in the hospital on a ventilator very early on. And I remember that really threw me. And I had a lot of friends at that time who were saying, hey, Sorkin, this isn't that big a deal. Or, hey, all the young people should go out, but all the old people should stay home and I remember just trying to think through what was happening there. But then at the same time, then there was the markets and what was happening. I remember when Bill Ackman obviously was on with Wapner that afternoon and all the calls that I was getting. And I actually thought at the time that Ackman actually was right about what was happening. I didn't think that things, by the way, would get that great. I think we've all now realized that there was this crazy, almost Alice in Wonderland style euphoria that was sort of irrational. But at that time, I think the Fed did what it was supposed to do. The government did what it needed to do. I was writing articles, given all the articles in Too Big to Fail, having written about that in 2008, that what you need to do is like flood the zone immediately. So I was a huge advocate for that. You can blame me now, but maybe not, because actually I was not an advocate for the second, third, fourth, and fifth tranches of it all. That's, it was crazy. We'd rented a house in Connecticut to get out of the city during this craziness. And I was hosting the show from down there. Every morning, I'd go to the kitchen, get a coffee, go downstairs and do the show. We'd never done anything like that either. That was sort of unto itself, felt bizarre and somewhat novel. And everybody was coming on. Bernanke would come on the show and Lloyd Blankfein would call into I mean, every morning. And if they weren't on the show, certain people actually didn't want to come on the show, but they were texting the whole time. They text you during the show. Can you believe this? It was a pretty amazing and remarkable moment. What I think became even more remarkable about it, though, was actually how so many people became interested in the markets during this period. And because all of a sudden they had cash, these young people had cash, you saw the rise of crypto. By the way, to Paul Tudor Jones's credit, I remember him coming on similar time around when Stan Druckenmiller made the big crypto move, maybe around eight, 9,000, saying this is going to be a great thing. I'm still closer to Warren Buffett on this than I am necessarily on others. But everybody all of a sudden won the lottery ticket. Then obviously we got to GameStop a year later. And what's been so weird for me, I'm so curious what you guys think about this is after 2008, I remember so many of us in the media got blamed effectively for the crisis, for not blowing the whistle loud enough. And so I think in some ways, maybe I always became a little paternalistic about it. 
Meaning I always was trying to temper the audience on this could go the wrong way. This doesn't really make a lot of sense today. Tomorrow could go up, but long-term this may be a little nuts. And people would get angry with you for saying that. They get angry because they thought you were either telling them that they were stupid or that they should have the opportunity at the lottery ticket or that you're trying to protect them from themselves. And that by even trying to do that, you're really not protecting them. You're actually protecting the man. You're protecting the system. And that to me was a real sort of mind F, if you know what I mean. Let me jump in because I know exactly what you mean. And I'll take it one step further, if I may. You know, it becomes politicized. There'll be people say, well, you're not bullish because this is an administration that you don't believe in. Now, you're not bullish because you're un-American. I've gotten all that stuff directed at me on Twitter on a number of different levels. And to your point, you're just trying to point out what can go wrong, given the fact that we lived through it now 14 or so years ago. How infuriating is that? I will tell you categorically, it pisses me off because I'm not a cheerleader. I don't have the pom-poms. You're trying to show to the folks out there, hey, listen, I'm just pointing out what I've seen before and what I think we're headed towards, yet nobody wants to hear it. There are no ramifications and no repercussions for being constantly bullish when the shit hits the fan. Well, we were all bullish. It doesn't matter. So that's the frustration I have from time to time, Andrew. Similarly, like the SPAC phenomenon happened. And I remember we would have Chamath Palihapitiya on, who's, by the way, a fascinating character and a remarkable entrepreneur in many ways and a great marketer. But if you asked him a tough question and he dodged it and he asked again or something like that, all of a sudden you'd get the pushback online was like, what are you doing, man? This guy's like the Messiah. Leave him alone. And I always thought our job was sort of to interrogate people to get to the truth and at least so that the audience understood what was happening. And it was almost like a collective dissonance, like people didn't want to understand. And it wasn't just SPAC. And I remember the interview you're talking about. I think they were introducing maybe it was Open Door, the investment of one of his SPACs. And you're asking him about the economics of it and how much he ends up owning of the deal once it's done. And again, he was you know a serial SPAC issuer. Listen, I know Chamath and I think he is a brilliant guy. And I think a lot of what he was trying to accomplish there wasn't just motivated by making about as much as he could. And there's a lot of claims now about bag holders and this and that, whatever. It's all gone wrong. But here's the point. It's all gone wrong in a lot of places. If you think back Andrew, we started this podcast, I think it was the second week of January 2021. The GameStop thing was going on like gangbusters. Crypto had just gone berserk. SPAC issuance that month was more than the prior year, literally. And then that quarter of Q1 2021 was more than the prior 10 years combined. And then we had all of this rush of unprofitable tech companies. NFTs were about to bubble up. And we've been calling with our co-host, Danny Moses, who can't be here today. He's actually golfing in parts unknown. We'll just say that. And he did give us the warning guy this week. We are taping this right now. It is Wednesday afternoon here on May 11th. He says, every time I go off on golf trips, the market always crashes just so you know, to be very fair. And that seems to be what's going on a little bit. I hate to use the C word, but what's going on in the NASDAQ is nasty. We've been calling it like this, that this is all fugazi, okay? You know what a fugazi is? It's a woozy, it's a wazi. Yep. Yeah, you know the drill. It's not on the elemental charts. It doesn't exist. There was too much of that all going on at once. And then the advent of Reddit, of Twitter, of all this other crap where people would just get up in your grill. We stayed pretty steadfast about it. And you kept asking the tough questions. I don't think any of us have to look back on any of it and feel like we did the retail investor wrong. I think actually we did folks right. I hope we did them right. What I don't know is whether it was appreciated at all. (laughs) Maybe that's too much to ask. And I think that's hard to ask, actually, especially from kids 
who've been clocked think of Bitcoin, where about 45% of Bitcoin holders are now in the red. Go back to the apes on AMC. Go back to the folks on GameStop who are still trying to claim there's some kind of grand conspiracy between Robin Hood and Citadel or who knows what. By the way, you say that you're going to get 10,000 tweets just there for no reason. Well, it's amazing how that's been politicized without going down that rabbit hole. But I was watching, I happened to be flipping around cable news the other night, and I actually saw a segment on exactly that and how, for some reason, it's this, the man against the individual investor, and they're holding you guys down, and it's all political. It is pretty fascinating. I don't expect you to know this, but I've been ranting about our Federal Reserve since I started doing the show. And I've said, I don't think these are bad people. I'm not saying that, but I think history is littered with disastrous outcomes born of good intentions. And I think we're living through this now. One of the things I've said, Andrew, I'm interested in your take. The business cycle is what it is. And part of the business cycle are downturns, recessions, potentially. It's not a bad thing. People use it as a four-letter word. I don't think that it is. I think it's a natural and important part of the business cycle. But the Fed decided they could alchemy it out. And I think we're starting to learn the other side of that coin. It can get pretty dicey. What are your thoughts on Fed policy and where we are right now? I know you talk about it all the time as well. Look, I'm like a broken record. And I think it's such a strange thing. I think there's, first of all, there's nothing politically that any administration, whether you're a Democrat, Republican, there's nothing in Washington that can be done. There's nothing to do. The only thing that can be done is this blunt instrument called the Federal Reserve to raise rates, which effectively means that they're trying to send demand down. They have to hurt demand. Nobody likes to say that aloud, but that's what they have to do because there's not enough supply to meet the demand and because we can't fix the supply problem. The supply problems nobody can deal with. So I imagine that the only way this ultimately gets solved is not Volcker-like, but there's going to have to be some kind of true shock to the system to actually say, okay, we're not doing this this way anymore, if you actually really want to get control of the inflation. Because some inflation may come down naturally in the fall when it comes to certain supply chain issues on certain things like maybe semiconductors and other kinds of things like that. But these wages are sticky. That's not changing. You got to raise. It's not changing. It'll be interesting on travel. Right now, you can't get on an airplane for less than six, $700 round trip economy. If you're going business, forget about it. Two, $3,000 before the plane takes off. And in a hotel that used to cost 200, 300 bucks, now six, seven, a thousand dollars is crazy. So it'll be interesting if those prices come down or if you think that's permanent. I don't think that portion is permanent, but mentioned this on a few podcasts ago that I saw something on television and I do watch TV that I'd never seen before. So I'm 58 years old and I was watching and it was for Great Wolf Lodge, I think it is. I'm sure you're familiar with it. You have little kids. Yeah, we've been. And I'm thinking, I'm watching this commercial. I'm like, oh, here's a commercial to get me to take my kids to Great Wolf Lodge. But no, that's not what the commercial was for. The commercial was Great Wolf Lodge seeking people to work there. They were looking for employees. I had never seen that in my life. My point being, all the things you talked about, I do believe will abate. But this wage inflation, that ain't going anywhere anytime soon. And you talk about it every morning. I mean, there are more job openings than there are people looking for work. So there's this problem is going to exist, I think, for the foreseeable future in terms of not peak inflation, but persistent and pesky inflation. And so what do you think you got to do about it? You think you have to send the economy into a real recession? I mean, you are seeing some of these tech companies, which we know, Peloton, the CEO called himself thinly capitalized. There are some that are razor thin capital or have no capital. 
those companies are either going to go out of business or get bought. And there's a lot of people who are going to get fired. Now, the question is, in this particular moment, two weeks later, they'll turn around and get a job. Two, three months from now, if a lot of companies are having this issue, maybe it's different. I don't know. I'm with you on that. I'll say this. People will say the Fed is making a policy error now. I say, no, 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 no. The policy errors were made four, five, 10, 12 years ago, constantly throwing liquidity at the system, hoping for an outcome that they have inevitably got. Now they can't control that outcome. Now, to your point, they're using a blunt instrument, which is exactly that, because that's the only tool they have to quell what they've been begging for for years. So my problem with this Federal Reserve isn't what they're going through now. It's what they decided to do many, many years ago. I'm just thoughts on that. I don't disagree with you. We can relitigate the past. I'm of the view, post-financial crisis, the truth is the lesson, I think, was you actually did have to spend. You didn't have to keep spending. I think in the moment you had to spend, similarly, like in the moment of the initial shock of the pandemic, you needed to spend. But I think in each of those cases, things got out of control because they kept going. My sense of this is that the Fed has gone too far, but I don't want people to take away, at least from my impression, that when there's a crisis, the lesson shouldn't be. And it was actually what happened in 1929. It's why things went wrong. People actually tightened up. They didn't loosen up. So you need to loosen in a crisis. That is the right thing to do. But you can't let the party go on for too long. And I think you're right. I remember using the terminology, and I think I kind of ripped it off, the whole idea of flooding the zone. And I think actually in February of 2020, the Fed did do that. They acted much quicker than Congress did, and then the Treasury was able to mobilize. And I agree with all that. I think Guy and I differ on this, is that the financial crisis, if they hadn't done what they had done, we might have been in a global depression. But again, the same mistake that they made was keeping their pedal on the metal, all those different iterations of QE and ZERP for as long as they did. The one thing I'd just say this about inflation and specifically wage inflation, if you go back to pre-pandemic, and Guy makes this point all the time, the Fed was dying for inflation to be above 2%. And we know that there was wage disinflation. Why? Well, technology, right? And automation. And we were talking about universal basic income and all these sorts of things. And so my view last year, when it looked like we were going to be out of this pandemic, where there was all these weird migrations, all these different things with hybrid working, all this demand for high-tech workers, all these jobs that you're talking about. But here's the thing. Peloton's not firing engineers. Peloton's firing people whose jobs are going to be automated when we get back to a normal economy. And so what I worry is that it's not too different than the buildup into the dot-com crisis where you had all these companies being funded by really cheap capital that were spending money like drunken sailors, and there's going to be an overcorrection to the upside. So here we are. We're almost at pre-pandemic unemployment levels at 3.6%. That's only going higher. And then it's going to be a lot of people who were compensated or thought they were being richly compensated through stock options and the like that are worth nothing. Now, all these people are going to start trading down on jobs. I'm just telling you, there's another way to think about what's going on with too many job openings and not enough jobs. And then you layer in what's going on with immigration on the lower end. I just think the job thing is going to only go the opposite way. I think we're going to be in a tough spot here. And we've been talking about it on the podcast for a while. And Danny introduced it well before anybody I saw on CNBC talking about it. This whole notion of stagflation, of sticking around here. And that's the one thing. When you think about the equity market, you think about the bond market, and you think about what the dollar is doing, and you think about commodities, it's about as weird as I have seen it in 25 years. And the fact that the stock market is only down a little less than 17% 
from its all-time highs, Andrew, in 2022 after being up 26% year. It just does not encapsulate what comes next, in my opinion. I'm just curious. I know that if I was on your show, you'd have to push back here, but I'm asking the questions because it's our podcast. What do you make of that? I know that was a lot, but I think things are about to get weird here for the economy and for the markets. I don't think you're wrong. The question is, what's fair value? That's the thing that I'm just not sure about. What is fair value of this market? Well, Guy and I are playing a little game here on Twitter, okay? And I tweeted this out last night. If the 10-year average for the S&P 500, a PE has been 17, do we deserve to be above that right now? I would say no, okay? That's A. B, estimates right now, current consensus estimates, fact set for 2022 S&P earnings are up 10%, Andrew. 10%. There's no way that's happening. Where the dollar is, where commodities are. So think about that. We're at peak margins. So let's cut that in half. Let's call it $208. You multiply that times 17 and you get 35.50, which is just above the pre-pandemic high of 34.50 before we crash. Okay, we topped out at what 4800. So you tell me, $208 in earnings at the average 10 year for the S&P at 17. You do a little math there and that gets you to 3550, that's not a great outcome because the S&P right now just broke 4,000 of the downside. It's down 17%. And if we go down another 400 points, that's another 10%. Look, I'm of the view we still have a way to go. That's my own view. I may be wrong. I may be right. I'm on the conservative end of this. I think your math is pretty good. The only question I have, and we are also obviously talking about this in the context of the S&P or larger indexes, I do wonder what to think of some of the tech companies, which have now been discounted tremendously. It's like the last two years disappeared. And yes, we pulled forward all of those earnings, but you'd think that they now have more customers they should be able to do more with, unless we just decided that the whole environment just became so much more competitive going forward. There's part of me that thinks that some of those tech companies may actually be biased at this point. Whether we like it or not, and I've talked about this, I think for... 30 million people in this country-ish, let's call it 8% of the population. This is late 1920s, 1930s stuff going on. We don't talk about it because we just don't talk about it. But it is Depression-era shit without question. I'm of the belief that the wealth gap in this country has never been wider, and it just continues to grow. That zero interest rate policy that they put in place didn't help the people at the lower end of the curve, didn't help the savers. And now the flip side in this inflationary environment, the people that got screwed 15 years ago are getting screwed again. The rich just keep on winning. This is a serious question because this is a real problem. And this, to me, a lot of the angst we see out there is on the back of exactly this. You want my real answers on this? Yeah, of course I do. My sense is you are extraordinarily sensitive to this and you understand it intuitively what's going on. As a country, we live beyond our means. We don't like to say that aloud too often, but we've been living beyond our means for a very, very long time. I feel like there's a couple of things that you got to do. One is you have to figure out a revenue plan, and then you have to figure out a cost plan. Or you can figure out the cost plan first if you want to do it that way. But everything is so effed up in Washington, it's sort of hard to believe that anything could ever happen. I'm of the view on the tax front and I don't talk about taxes to confiscate money or to change inequality by taking things from people. But I think that the tax code is a expression of our democracy and people have to feel it's fair and they don't and they're not wrong and there's loopholes galore and they have to nail that. And then I think we have to figure out what we're actually going to do about costs. I think the cost of education is incredible. The cost of education is not going to be fixed, by the way, by getting rid of student debt or by 
more grants. The reason why the cost of education is so much is because we keep doing that, frankly. It's like the cost of healthcare. It's like we don't negotiate with anybody. So I think someone's got to get a hold of this thing and say, enough, this is fugazi. And I think if you could actually figure out the education piece and figure out the healthcare cost piece, so those are the two biggest pieces. But I don't know how politically you do that. And so I just feel like I'm tilting at windmills. The level of discourse, it just seems it's red hot, white hot, however you want to describe it here. And it's just interesting that we're sitting here and I'm watching the stock market. It was up a little bit this morning and now the NASDAQ's down nearly like 3%. It just seems like a lot of things are crumbling here. And you guys have spent a lot of time, we've spent a lot of time on the network talking about some of these wars among these billionaires. And I think it's kind of an interesting link between what Guy just kind of mentioned is that this income inequality that's just been exasperated by all of this policy over the last let's call it 20 years or so now we have these billionaires fighting amongst each other they're all these libertarians and they got all this stuff and then elon musk who's doing supposedly a lot of great stuff as it relates to sending rockets down to space and landing them here and moving the entire auto business to evs but he's crusading now on something that just seems so odd to me in the name of free speech he wants to fix the town square the town square where there's really only 200 million people globally on it every day. Now I get it. A lot of tweets are amplified a bit more, but when you think about the fact that Facebook has 3 billion daily active users, it's just kind of odd to me. So I'm just curious your take of the billionaire squabbles. You squabble with Jack. Now they're on the same side. Now they want to decentralize it. They're doing it in the name of free speech. Mel got mad at me last night. She got mad at me. She got annoyed at me because I made some connection on the show about how Elon is cozied up to the Chinese government, which is very repressive, authoritarian. There's no such thing as free speech, but it's an important market for him. It's an important place for him to build his cars, yet he's buying Twitter for a price that makes absolutely no sense to anybody with a brain at $44 billion, and he's saying it in the name of free speech. And it seems like kind of really Trumpy AF, if you know what I'm talking about. What's happening here to me I was never somebody who begrudged people's success. I want people to have lots of success. I love a great entrepreneurial story. I love a great entrepreneur. And I think Elon Musk is one of those great entrepreneurs, a great opportunist in many ways. I say that in the best sense of the word. But I think there is an element, and I don't think I appreciate it actually until recently. I actually think the Elon Musk purchase of Twitter might have actually been like a eureka moment for me, because I know a lot of people have been very upset for a long time about social media, and they say Mark Zuckerberg controls this thing, and how could this be? And you know, we have these billionaire emperors that are now in charge of the world and all this power is in one place. It's increasingly making me anxious. The purchase of Twitter, in a way, opened my eyes to that in a new way, in part because he was so public about saying this is not an economic animal for him. He says he wants free speech. If you think about it, he wants to control the speech. He wants to control the speech the way he sees the speech should be on that platform. That's what he wants. And by the way, he may do it in a fabulous way. I'm not sure how this is going to end. I do think that Elon, I tell myself that there is a North Star for him and he may not know or fully understand the full dynamics of how all this works right now, but I kind of think he'll figure it out. I'm hoping he's going to figure it out in the same way, frankly, that he figured out with Tesla. I've known Elon for 15 some odd years. And when he was doing Tesla, he'll tell the stories. The early stories of Tesla was a mess. He iterated and figured it out. Now, this is different in that, Twitter has a big impact on people. He wasn't on Broadway when he was first starting Tesla. So I do think it's an issue. But by the way, this goes back, we're talking about taxes before. Do you guys see the Trevor Noah video about unrealized taxes with Elon? Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Brilliant. And it's true, which is to say that if you have money, you can make more money. 
And by the way, even if you that money never gets taxed, that's part of the thing that has to get solved for it. We've created this system where you're never taxed. You can keep levering up. By the way, it may all fall to pieces for him too. I don't think so at this point. What do you make of criticisms, Andrew, that, for instance, the Salzberger family has owned the New York Times for all intents and purposes in controlling that outlet, which is very important. Does that make you equally nervous, obviously, as one of your employers? No, it's very funny. Is that many years ago, we were doing a DealBook conference. Lloyd Blankfein was on the stage. And there were all of these tech companies like Snapchat and others that were going public, all with these dual class share structures. And I, thinking I'm so clever, say to him, what do you think of these dual class structures? Don't you think this is a real problem and makes no sense? And he looks at me and looks around at the audience at the New York Times event. And he says, well, here we are at the New York Times and there's dual class structure. And I remember, of course, the audience laughed and I said, touche. In many ways, I would argue that the New York Times has been blessed by the dual class structure. I think had it not had the dual class structure, I'm not sure where it would be. I mean, you think about what happened in Gannett, for example, is now owned by what, Alden Capital. So all these things cut both ways. That's why I'm not a purist on any of it. It's not like I would tell you that one is always better than the other. And by the way, Elon Musk, as you know, has done a tremendous job with Tesla and all these other things. There's no question that the guy's a genius. The question is, when it's working, it's great. When it's not working, it's a problem. I saw that 60 Minutes episode. 60 Minutes kicks ass. By the way, I'm looking forward to the day that you're one of those voices, which leads me to my next question. You're extraordinarily successful. I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. You're one of the most thoughtful, interesting people that I've met. And I mean that sincerely. Certain people you can see, they think about their responses. You don't blurt. I totally dig that. With that said, there are a lot of chapters left for you, ARS. Where do you see yourself in five years from now? Oh, goodness. Honestly, maybe this is going to sound unsatisfying. I actually like what I do every day. I would love to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm spinning a lot of plates and I enjoy spinning all of them. As I said, I get to have breakfast with all the most interesting people in the world, including you guys sometimes in the mornings. I get to jump over on Morning Joe or whatnot. The New York Times has been my home since I was 18 years old. And then I've got these little baby projects that bubble up here and there in the drama worlds and whatnot. And that's fun to see and help launch. So if I could keep doing that kind of thing, maybe if I could do it and be a little more organized about it, probably a little better. You wrote the definitive book on the financial crisis, Too Big to Fail, obviously. What's something that could be bubbling up that could capture your attention to write that sort of book about an event that's going on? Obviously, there's going to be a ton of stuff on the pandemic. You had a front row seat for all that. David Rosenberg uses this example all the time, which I think is fascinating, that The Great Gatsby was written five years after the 1917-18 pandemic, and there's not a single mention of it in the book, which I think is pretty fascinating in a way. I'm just curious, what's the sort of thing that makes you want to put pen to paper and write the definitive thing on something. So I just say, watch this space. More to come. Fair enough. Will you break it on on the tape or are you going to break it on Squawk Box with Max? Oh, that's a good question. I think I'm doing this one for free, the podcast. So I probably... (laughs) Actually, each one of our guests gets a bottle of Como's tequila. Oh my goodness. Yeah, you're going to love that. I'll talk to Myers and see if I get dispensation. (laughs) Fair enough. Andrew, it's great having you on. We know you got to hop. It's been a joy speaking with you. You guys are the best, truly. And by the way, I listen to both of you and I've admired what you're doing. Think about it. This project, it's not even a project anymore. It's a company. It's amazing what you're building. I've talked to you both about it and I'm super impressed with it. A little bit jealous myself. And I I admire the hell out of both of you. So congratulations. Thank you, Andrew. Well, thanks. There's always a mic open for you here on On the Tape there, Andrew. Thanks a lot for joining us. You're too kind. Thank you, guys. 
Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.